The recent state-of-the-art conference in London featured a session by the incredibly progressive and motivated trainee committee. Dubbed The Cauldron, it featured the best five trainee presentations in a competition with the mission to challenge widely accepted beliefs in critical care. This session provided one of the highlights of the conference as Dr James Morgan challenged us to view elements of critical care from an evolutionary perspective. Originally trained in evolutionary biology and psychology at the University of Nottingham, James is an intensive care trainee in Yorkshire, England. He is interested in the benefits of applying evolutionary understanding in critical care medicine and seeks to open medical eyes to the increasingly recognised benefits of an evolutionary approach. Needless to say, James won the Intensive Care Society's Cauldron 2012 Award for his presentation on the evolutionary origins of iron withholding and fever in sepsis and how this guides treatment. It's my pleasure today to have him on the podcast. James, critical care is predicated on the belief that if we keep the physiological variables in the normal range, then we may be of benefit to our patient. But in your presentation, you challenged the definition of what's normal. Can you explain what you meant? Um, I think it's a conclusion that many people have come to, uh, you know, over the last um, few years that um, traditionally we've we've always aggressively pursued um, physiological norms for a healthy patient at rest um, when uh, in reality, you know, if that healthy patient then um, becomes septic uh, and undergoes an acute phase response, then we would expect them normally perhaps to become febrile, to become tachycardic, um, to have a reduced iron concentration in the blood, reduced zinc concentration, uh, perhaps become oliguric, alter their behaviour. So the definition of, of, of what's normal for a person to do and what is normal for a person to evolve to do is, is purely based on context. And I would argue that you know it's not normal to have a normal temperature if you're um, dying of a, a bacterial infection. It's not normal to have a hemoglobin of you know, 15, 16 grams per deciliter if you've got a profound systemic um, inflammatory response going on. So the fact that we aggressively, historically at least, have aggressively attempted to normalise those variables by treating fever, by treating anemia, by replacing electrolytes by zinc, essentially trying to trying to drag physiology back to these normal variables, um, has been demonstrated more recently to be probably detrimental um, and we're beginning to understand increasingly why um, why that is and, and a lot of those explanations are to do with evolutionary defence mechanisms certainly in the case of fever and uh, the case of iron and nutritional immunity. You talked about the conservation of fever in uh, across the animal species can you explain about that? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been widely recognised for many years that, that fever is, as you say, it's highly conserved evolutionarily throughout the animal kingdom. So um, all mammals exhibit fever in uh, an infection. Um, insects modify their behaviour to raise their body temperature in infection. Um, fish, shrimps, you name it, they, they all um, generate fever and infection. Um, despite the fact that it's costly, it's metabolically very costly to raise your temperature, um, it usually involves an increase in the metabolic rate of 
the order of 15 to 20%. So the fact that it's so widespread and the fact that it, it, it's so widespread despite being costly, um, it would be very naive to think that it is of no benefit. Um, and of course, as studies are increasingly showing, fever and infection is, um, is often extremely beneficial. And the question that uh, Matt Kruger in, in the States first addressed in the 70s was an ingenious experiment using uh, reptiles actually use lizards because they're ectotherms, so they don't regulate, you know, they, they're dependent on the environment to regulate their own temperature, including infection. So it means that you can experimentally manipulate it. So he gave uh, these lizards bacteremias and then he manipulated their temperature across a, a range of different temperatures and found that those at febrile temperatures survived and did well, and those at lower temperatures um, died quite rapidly. And then in the natural extrapolation from that experiment, he, he began to give them bacteremias and treat them with antibiotic drugs. Um, so when they were given salicylates, the group that uh, had salicylates and um, mounted a fever despite this did well. Uh, the group that didn't have salicylates and mounted a fever did well. And the group that had salicylates and failed to mount a fever as a result of those antibiotic drugs um, all died. Um, and that sparked, uh, you know, a lot of interest and um, research since then. Um, but unfortunately, it's not a, uh, well, ethically, it's not an approach that you would get away with doing in humans, deliberate, deliberately giving them bacteremias. But it was an approach that won a Nobel Prize in the, the 1920s when um, an Austrian physician used uh, malaria itself as a, a so-called pyrotherapy as a way of treating um, and preventing tertiary syphilis. So he took people with suffering from syphilis and um, inoculated them with malaria. Uh, they then mounted high fevers um, and then thereafter if they survived he would treat the malaria with quinine uh, and the survival from syphilis, which then was essentially a death sentence, was less than 1% survival, went to over 30%, and he won the, I think it was a 1927 um, Nobel Prize for medicine for his use of so-called pyrotherapy, but the wisdom of the benefits of fever seem to have been lost on us for the last um, 80 years or so, unfortunately, but people are now coming around to the idea that, that um, fever, for a variety of reasons, probably is of uh, benefit in sepsis, and, and I, I see the big uh, ANZIX trial that's ongoing uh, down at the moment to try and um, kind of fill out the picture on this, looking at, um, I think they're randomizing basically adults with sepsis uh, to treatment and non-treatment um, with paracetamol. I think it'd be very interesting to see the results of that work. What are the mechanisms that you referred to there? Why would fever help you in critical illness? Um, so, I mean, there's a, a whole, a huge list of, of um, kind of the, the cellular level, the benefits of fever and fighting infection. Um, I think more recently, the understanding of the role of heat shock proteins um, has been very important in terms of their role um, in apoptosis of infected cells um, and the fact that uh, a raised temperature itself elicits, elicits heat shock proteins in the host and elicits heat shock proteins in the pathogen. Uh, and when the pathogen expresses those heat shock proteins, which essentially help it to try and uh, survive and maintain its genetic 
material uh, in this higher temperature, when it when it expresses those proteins, that increases the antigenicity of the of the pathogen, so it increases the, the odds that the host immune system will recognize it and optimize those cells and then, um, you know, be able to destroy them, essentially. But, uh, I mean, it, the, the list literally does increase year on year in terms of, at the cellular level, neutral margination and um, uh, the, the role in cellular signaling, interleukins, um, it's it's beyond the scope of my kind of uh, understanding to list them all, but um, it's it's pretty extensive, uh, and it's often interestingly it's the same trigger um, as um, iron withholding. So interleukin one um, triggers both heat shock proteins and prostaglandin two and various other pyrogens, but it's also activates heptidin, which is Responsible for iron withholding and sepsis. Um, so again, it's uh, intuitively appealing that, that that's likely by the same sort of evolved mechanism that, that they've come about. You referred there to a misunderstanding in iron physiology as well with iron holding and sepsis. Can you explain what that is? Um, so essentially, uh, iron is a, is a, a crucial um, resource for bacteria that they um, survive in a, a very kind of hand-to-mouth manner in terms of um, they can't do without iron, um, whereas humans, um, certainly in a short time, can do with uh, do relatively well with much lower iron concentrations than they used to, um, partly as evidenced by the, you know, the trick trial and things. Um, but we've traditionally we've treated um anemia in the intensive care unit because it's an abnormality and because we can. Um, but um, when you look more closely, you see that um, a, a lot of the acute failure response in humans is geared towards sequestering iron and withholding it from bacterial um, bacterial pathogens. Um, so as I alluded to, interleukin-1 causes release of a, a substance called hepcidin, which was discovered about 10 years ago. Um, so-called because it's the hep part because it's produced in the liver and the cidin because it was noted it was noted at the time it had quite strong bactericidal effects. It's also very good antifungal. What hep cidin does is um, uh, affects uh, the uh, iron channels uh, uh, in the gut, and so it, uh, there's a profound reduction in um, gut absorption of iron in the acute phase, and it also um, affects macrophages such that they don't release iron um, with it anywhere near as easily as they do in the non-infected individual and that serves to um, withhold iron from um, from pathogens and, but, but they themselves have kind of counter-evolved their own mechanisms so if you look at um, mechanisms of bacteria have the um, have hemoprotein hemophoroceptors so that they can um, directly remove iron from heme-based proteins. They can also remove iron direct from most proteins, such as transferrin and lactoferrin, that are activating the immune response to try and withhold iron. So they, they sequester iron, but bacteria can um, essentially steal it back. Uh, and they also have um, receptors called sidrophores that bind free iron uh, in the blood with a, you know, an extremely high 
association constant or something. I think it's like 10 to the 50. So um, bacteria have a whole arsenal of ways in which they try and steal iron from hosts, try and bind iron them, which they need for themselves. Um, and unfortunately, we often play into their hands by increasing hemoglobin concentrations and by transfusing uh, patients with blood, which is often old and has a certain amount of free iron. Um, and, uh, you know, worsens the situation, certainly in sepsis. And I think a large amount of the benefit of conservative transfusion regimens that we've seen with things like the TRIP trial um, is possibly um, could be explained in terms of this benefit rather than other mechanisms such as reduction in transfusion reactions and the adverse effect of fluid overload. Um, I think a significant portion of that evidence may well be explained in terms of, of this mechanism that you're not, you know, feeding iron into the hands of, of the infection. Another um, fairly contentious area in critical care medicine in recent years has been that of glycemic control, and we've seen the, the pendulum swing fairly wildly on this topic in recent years. What's the perspective of the evolutionary biologist on hyperglycemia in critical illness? Well, I think certainly the, the um, you know, insulin is an anabolic hormone, isn't it? And, and it's mainly a catabolism that, you, that we get in the inflammatory response, all the kind of steroid hormones that are um, kicking around. I think it's inevitable that you're going to see more in the way of hyperglycemia than, than hypoglycemia, unless obviously you get into realms of liver failure and things. So... I think it fits in with all that, and because hyperglycemia per se, um, as long as there's some insulin around, is is not particularly uh, a malign phenomenon. I think it probably hasn't been selected against. So it's kind of a byproduct of the inflammatory response, but because it doesn't have particularly drastic consequences, it hasn't been selected against, and so it, it persists. Um, and, I, and certainly some of the papers I've seen argue that we, we should pursue, aggressively pursue kind of single-figure normal glycemia as much as perhaps we had in the past. You've mentioned some of the features of acute phase response there that you've suggested are adaptive responses, but these yeah. um, are all physiological stresses as well on the body, and I'm wondering how you rationalise that. How does the acute phase response evolve um, when it does cause such distress on the body. Yeah, so that's that's an argument that's often levelled at, at people that are, that where you where you put forward the idea that, that that many of these abnormalities, which are stresses, are an evolved defence mechanism. Um, and you, you're absolutely right; they are physiological stresses, but they're physiological stresses both to um, host cells and, and to the to the patient, but also to uh, pathogens, so bacteria and viruses, so, you know, hypoxia, um, uh, pyrexia, um, hypocapnia, all these things um, are physiological stresses, but the, the key question is to whom are they more stressful? So if you're a bacteria that can store a tiny amount of iron and is essentially surviving a very hand-to-mouth way um, with this crucial resource um, versus... Um, you know, a human who does need iron but can tolerate quite low iron concentrations, certainly for short periods, um, uh, you know, certainly less than half of the normal hemoglobin concentration in the blood is no problem. 
and a, and a, certainly with a patient without ischemic heart disease, you can see how uh, inducing a state of so-called hypophoremia for a short uh, period of time could be uh, more stressful to um, a bacterial pathogen that, that's attempting to reproduce within the body than it is to the body themselves. And so the real question is, to him, is, it, is it more of a, a physiological stress? And that, that's an argument that's been put forward by um, uh, people doing work in the States, people like Joe Olcock, um, who's got this kind of developed this concept of so-called immune brigmanship and saying that, that, that the acute phase response has evolved um, specifically because it is stressful and because um, it imposes um, costs, um, but that is differentially stressful and that it's more stressful to the invading organism, certainly in the short term. There's been an argument that perhaps we've evolved the ability to in some ways take ourselves out uh, to protect the rest of the herd, that, that maybe the uncontrolled response uh, is a protective mechanism on a population basis. Is there any support for this in, uh, in medical genetics? Um, I think, do you mean in terms of uh, almost as a kind of like an apoptotic response so that the, the infected individual removes themselves and kind of lays down and dies so they don't, Propagate the infection. Is that is that the argument? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think uh, it would be um, uh, unlikely on the face of it because um, the, I mean, even the, the use of the term herd itself. I mean, herding is a is a selfish phenomenon. It's not uh, a selfless phenomenon. And this it sounds more almost like a group selectionist argument, which is the argument that we do things kind of for the for the benefit of the, the wider group. Whereas, uh, you know, the arrival of the selfish gene in the 70s helped us understand that that essentially, um, unless the, the herd to which you refer is all very very closely related um, to the person that's become infected. Um, it would be difficult for that behaviour of kind of self-sacrifice to evolve. It can evolve. It's something we see in insects um, where um, things like bees are haplodiploid, so they're incredibly closely related. And all, um, they will do things that will sacrifice themselves both for the queen, but in, in humans, um, it's unlikely that would evolve unless... Uh, yeah, I, I, it's very difficult to see how that would evolve because... Um, you're almost always better off to stay alive and further reproduce yourself than you would be to sacrifice yourself for that. It's like um, it's a famous quote from J.B.S. Holding when someone someone said, would you uh, lay down your life for your brother? And he said, yeah, I wouldn't for my brother, but I would for two brothers or for eight first cousins. And kind of the, the notion he's introducing there is that of inclusive fitness. So you're evolutionary success, if you like, is measured in terms of your inclusive fitness. So you're, the number of individuals that share the same genetic material as you multiplied by your coefficient of relatedness to them. So a brother would be, on average, would share, share half the genes. So that would be uh, a coefficient of relatedness of 0.5. Hence, for two brothers, you might consider laying down your life or eight first cousins. Um, 
so mathematically it is possible, but there would be a lot of uh, a lot of riders on that statement. So you'd have to know that the illness that you had was definitely going to be fatal. Um, you would have to be. Um, it would it, it would only evolve really mathematically if, um, in very unlikely circumstances. So I think I, f- I find that um, not a hugely appealing idea. You've chosen to go into intensive care as a specialty, which strikes me as a slight paradox with your past, um, given that intensive care really is about taking humans where no uh, human has gone before and almost defying evolution itself. Um, Where do you see the place of uh, evolutionary medicine in intensive care? Um, It's a good question because it's perhaps the most unnatural of environments. I think what evolutionary biology has to offer in intensive care is the fact that the landscape's changing in terms of as we said, we're beginning to accept that abnormal physiological um, goals may be more beneficial and have evidence of better outcomes than the traditional physiological norms. And the question is which ones and why. Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that Ram Nessie kind of wrote the book on, on Darwinian medicine says it, is it doesn't, of course, it didn't have all the answers, and in a lot of respects, what it has is all the questions. It, as a heuristic tool, it offers lots of lots of really interesting questions um, that can help shape that landscape. So, you know, the, the whole idea of should we treat fever because, from an evolutionary perspective, fever is very beneficial, and, and hopefully, we're about to, to get the evidence base to demonstrate that. Should we be treating? Um, anemia aggressively, the trick trial and, and the evidence has followed on and suggested um, not, but I, I think there's maybe a bit of a gap in our understanding in terms of realising that, that, that hepcidin is released to, to, to sequester iron in infection. Um, so that's another another idea that, that can be of benefit in intensive care that's come from evolutionary thinking. Should we have uh, iron rich iron replete? Um, parental nutrition, should we have so much iron in our enteral feeding? And again, in terms of fever, lots and lots of the drugs that we use in intensive care medicine are antibiotics, so not just paracetamol and non-steroidals, but also general anaesthetic agents, so things like desflurane. If you give a, a rat an injection of um, bacteria like polysaccharides, the very sort of standard way to induce a fever in a mammal. If you give it a desflurane general anaesthetic and then do that, it, it nearly completely obtuns the febrile response to that bacterial matter being within them. Um, vasopressin is antipyretic, opiates, morphine is antipyretic. So if you picture someone who's, you know, coming to your hospital and had a, a sept, you know, septic patient having a laparotomy, they might have had paracetamol, they might have had non-steroidals, they may then have a general anaesthetic and then they may then end up on anotropic support, including vasopressin. So that's potentially four different antibiotic medications that we've given them um, that could be compromising their chances of survival because of the way it impairs their fever. But um, I don't think it's something that we've really been to think about very much. So I think the role of evolutionary perspectives in intensive care medicine is is getting us to think um, about 
um, what we should treat and what we shouldn't treat and when we are treating what sort of goals we should be aiming at because clearly the, the old uh, dogma of, of trying to restore physiological normality is, um, is finally um, sort of breathing its last and, and we need to, to try and establish what those new goals are in, in our treatments. So why I think evolutionary perspectives just offer us a lot of sensible questions and hypotheses to go out there and test and see where it gets us. Wonderful. James, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a fantastic opportunity to explore this fascinating topic. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.